Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and I know a lot of you will be happy about this because he is returning again. And if you are a long time listener, you'll know that for a few years now, he has been coming on probably once a year. And it's always a highlight for me. And I hope it's a highlight for you too. When we first spoke on this show about four years ago now, we discussed how overcomplicated health had become and how he was on a mission to simplify it. The view being to help people take control of how they feel, make appropriate choices and empower them to live their best lives. In helping others, both via his work on TV, his books and his hugely successful podcast, it's really clear that Rongan has gone on his own journey, one that has led him to a place whereby, his own admission, he has never felt better. Yes, there's a physical element to this, and if you've listened to our previous conversations, you'll know that Rongan keeps physically fit, but there's a mental, even emotional, dare I say even spiritual agility that he has worked on and which has prompted him to write his new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And during our conversation, we discussed his original mission statement all the way back from when we first spoke, which was that he wanted to, and I quote, help 100 million people feel fantastic by restoring them to optimal health. And he talks about this, his mission statement, original mission statement that he made. He talks about how a conversation with Holocaust survivor Edith Eager on his podcast changed him forever. Why confronting the things in life that make you feel uncomfortable instead of running away from them can be painful, but it's ultimately hugely rewarding. And how compassion, both for other people and yourself, can make the world feel like a much better place. It's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. It's open, honest, and it'll be interesting. I'll be interested to know what uh, resonates with you. But I can tell you that the thing that really struck me is when Rongan said, 
And I quote, I think so many of us think we can only be happy when the world around us is a certain way or people around us start acting in a certain way. I used to be that person, but I've done a lot of work over the last few years and I've really reframed my entire life and I genuinely feel I am the architect of my own health and happiness. I think that's pretty powerful and I understand why he wants so many people to hear about the work he has done and how he did it because he wants as many people as possible to have access to that feeling too. So with all that said, shall we get to it? He returns. It is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. The link to his social media, his podcast, his books, everything will be in the show notes. But he's waking, making a welcome return. It's Dr. Rongan Chatterjee on The Ever Gun Show. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. How are you? Emma, I'm always excited when I get the chance to sit and have a conversation with you. I have so enjoyed our previous conversations. I cannot wait to see where are you going to take me to today? <laughs> I'm going to take you on a magical mystery tour of happiness because that's really what you unpick so brilliantly in your new book. But do you know what? I'm actually going to go back to one of the first things that we ever discussed together, which is your mission statement. Because when we first spoke, which I think must be about three, four years ago now, you said, my mission is to help 100 million people feel fantastic by restoring them to optimal health. Yeah. Quite a goal. I'm just trying to think back to our first conversation. I think that was face-to-face in a hotel room. It was. Um, first time I'd met you and yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. I do remember saying that. And that used to be something that was really uncomfortable for me to say publicly. Like I, I would feel what will people think you know well they think he's been arrogant or boasting and it was never meant with that intention in fact I don't think anyone ever thought that it's just these stories we create inside our head about what other people might be thinking and the truth is they're probably not thinking any of those things but the goal at that time was this idea that what do I want to do like I've you know I've had two series of Doctor in the House on BBC One that have gone out 2015 and 2017. I knew that 5 million people a week watched them in the UK. It had since been shown in 70 different countries around the world. And then since then, you know, podcasts and books, you know, I've managed to impact and have a, I hope, a positive influence on the lives of many, many people, yes, in the UK, but also around the globe. And that whole kind of mission statement at that time was was really around helping me to make decisions as well. It was also there's so many opportunities that come in. It's like, well, will will this opportunity that I'm being presented with help me get closer to that 100 million number? And it was kind of like an aspirational thing. It was, you know, in, in many ways, it's very hard to ever measure, Right. And in some ways, it doesn't matter if I can measure it or not. It helps. I guess it helps helps give me a direction and a, and a, almost set the compass on my professional life in terms of what I'm trying to do. Mm. But I must be honest, Emma, like I've been thinking about that mission statement recently. And I'm not sure it sits as comfortably with me anymore. I haven't changed it yet. I haven't sort of <laughs> upgraded it or evolved it, I should say. Because life is a journey. We're always evolving. And just because we said something or thought something four years ago or five years ago, I don't think we need to put ourselves in a prison by sticking to that or feeling we have to stick to that for the rest of our life. 
I, I was thinking the other day, I was chatting with my team actually, 100 million, why 100 million? Why not 101 million? Why not 102 million? And in some ways, it's just an arbitrary number. But as I say, it helps you set that direction on your life. But in other ways, I'm thinking, well, every human being has unlimited potential. So why can't you impact every human who comes into contact with your work? And so I don't have an answer for you. I'm just being very honest and sharing with you my, my current thoughts. But in terms of that mission, I certainly feel I'm a lot further towards it than I was four years ago. Um, you know, I, I never imagined when I started off this journey in the public domain, you know, I never imagined that this many people would consume regularly the content that I put out. You know, I mentioned the, the BBC One show, but, you know, as we speak, my new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life is, is about to come out. It's my fifth book in five years. You know, we're already nearly on a million book sales in the first four books globally. And then if I, if I like to think that each one of those books will have impacted that reader positively, but it's not just them who it's impacted, because if we show up in a different way in our lives, if we feel healthier, we have more energy, if we have better emotional regulation, well, that ripples out to all the people we come into contact with. So then I think, well, I can't possibly know how many people might have been influenced with the books. And then with my weekly podcast, you know, it's just growing so fast. I, I, I just find it incredible that this many people want to listen to these long form in-depth conversations each week, because you know, on your own show, you know, you, you host a brilliant show um, that really helps so many people. Um, and we're, you know, you know, if you combine YouTube and audio now, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Like we're, I think we're on about one and a half million people a week now combining YouTube and audio. I think that is, I mean, that's just, that's over 6 million people a month. And you think, well, how does that all fit in with this 100 million goal? I don't know, right? I, I really don't know. So, you know, maybe next time we talk, I'll have a, I'll have a new mission <laughs> statement for you. But as things stand, I, I think it still works. But I suspect at some point, it may well evolve and change. Well, I think it's a, a really interesting way that you described it. it. It helped you set your course because you kind of had a destination figured out. So you'd know with every action, whether you were getting closer to it or further away from it. But I wonder as well, and when I read the book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, what really struck me is it almost felt as though the other books had to happen for this one to happen. And this one feels there's an urgency and a sense of calm about it. And I know that might seem like it wouldn't make sense the two together, but the urgency being, I can hear your passion and how much you want people to be able to apply what you share in the book and a calm because you're living it and you know that it works. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting perspective that no one's really mentioned to me before. And yeah, I, I think you've nailed it, Emma. I really think you have. I don't think I could have written this book without the last four. There is so much in this book that is personal. You know, I've shared so many things about myself, my insecurities, my perceived failings in life, things that frankly, I would not have had the courage to share 
five years ago, even two years ago, I would have felt nervous about sharing this stuff because what will people think? You know, I can't say that. I'm a, I'm a well-respected doctor. You know, I, I, I can't say something. Do you know what I mean? This, this kind of narrative, and I've learned, I guess, through my life experiences, also through my weekly podcast, I've learned that opening up, sharing how you really feel is not a weakness. It's actually courageous. And you can actually connect with more people because ultimately we're all perfectly imperfect. We're all doing the best that we can. And we sometimes have an idea that people we might look up to or see in public life with a certain degree of success, we kind of feel that, oh, they don't have the same issues that we have. You know, oh, they've got it all figured out. They've nailed it. But meanwhile, I'm really struggling my day-to-day life and worrying about what other people think of me and wondering whose life am I really leading. And so I feel really good that I've got to a place now where I can share this stuff because I think I think what stands this book out from my last four, A, I think it's a lot of fresh new content. Um, I feel, yes, there's me as the expert, right? The doctor with you know almost 21 years experience of seeing patients. But there's also me as a case study and showcasing how I've applied these principles, yes, with my patients, but also with myself to the point now where I can honestly sit here and say to you, Emma, I've never felt this good in my life. Like I've never felt this sense of calmness, contentment, inner peace. I didn't used to feel this way. Right. I think that's where you're saying there's an urgency and a calm. The urgency is that I think these things are urgent for people to understand. Like I think so many of us think that we can only be happy when the world around us is a certain way or people around us start acting in a certain way, right? I used to be that person, but I've done a lot of work over the last few years and I've really reframed my entire life where I, I now genuinely feel I am the architect of my own health and happiness. I can still be deeply happy and content, even if the world around me is not going the way that I might choose or people around me are not acting in a way that I might particularly like. It's, it's, a, it's a subtle distinction, but it's really, really important. It doesn't mean I don't care about other people. I do. But often I can see that other people's issues are their issues. I can be there to try and help, but it doesn't say anything about me. And so when I started writing this book, I didn't realize how urgent it was for society. I would argue that the principles in this book have never been more important than they are today. People are really struggling with mental well-being, you know, thinking about their place in the world. There's so much struggle, adversity, all kinds of things going on in the world that people don't like. Well, some people might say, well, how can you even think about happiness at a time like this? Well, you absolutely can. In fact, it's even more important, especially if we define what we mean by happiness. But I think that that's where the urgency comes from. Like I've experienced it. I've learned from it. I felt the benefits. I've seen it with my patients. I want to share it with you. Like I promise you don't have to be a victim to life. You can be in control of your life, no matter who you are and where you currently are. But I think the calmness comes from, you know, I do feel calm. Like I now know Emma in a way that I did not know in my previous conversations with you, that my inner worth as a human being is not dependent 
on how many books I now sell, right? How this book does commercially, let's say, the, the sort of things that my publisher Penguin will look at, you know, how many people have bought the books, it's nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with who I am as a person. My wife doesn't care whether I sell one book or 100,000 books. My children don't care. Like They just want a present human being when I'm interacting with them. My wife just wants a present husband who's got time to listen to her and be there for her. My kids just want their dad around, engaged with them in whatever they're doing at that time. And that's been a big learning for me that who I am, it's not dependent on external validation. And I think because of that, Emma, I'm coming into this book launch feeling very calm. Like the last four times I had a book out, I'd feel anxious in the weeks leading up to launch. You know, what are people going to think? What are they going to say? It's not that I don't care what people think or what they say, but it doesn't change who I am. Like, I'm so proud of this book. This is the best work I can create at this moment in my life. If it resonates with people, great. If it doesn't resonate with some people and it's not for them, that's okay as well. It doesn't mean it's a rubbish book. It doesn't mean it's a great book if people do buy it and like it. It's, do you know what I mean? It's this separation mm-hmm. that I feel I've worked on and I've really managed to bring into my life. And so, I don't know if that answered your question around urgency and calm, but that's no, no one's ever asked me that before. And that's, I guess, what came up for me as I heard you say that. Mm. It's, um, it's a surrender, isn't it? It's I've done my best and there is a line and then it's releasing it to the reaction that it gets. And you, it's, it's not a disassociation, I guess, but I guess there's a sort of once removed from other people's opinion of it because you are proud of it. Exactly. I've done the best work that I can. You know, when I pressed publish or the, or, or let's, let's be, you know, let's be completely honest. When Penguin said wrong and now you're out of time with edits, it's gone to the printer. <laughs> okay. Right. It doesn't mean, and I say this to a lot of authors who, uh, who, who come to me for advice. I say, guys, look, your ideas will never be done. Right. They will never, ever be finished just because you press print, whether it's a blog article, whether it's a podcast, Emma, whether it's whatever it might be, an email that you've sent, right? Your thoughts are constantly evolving. So if I was to, uh, if, if I was still writing the book now, I'm sure it would look a little bit different because your ideas don't suddenly stop when the arbitrary deadline comes in. No, they continue. So all you can ever do is the best that you can in that moment. I remember, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, I remember in the 90s, I was a big U2 fan. And I remember when, when uh, their pop album came out, I think it was the album After Acting Baby. I remember an interview with Bono and he said, the album wasn't finished. The problem is, is that we had sold out a world tour on the back of the album. So we just had to, we just had to put it out. The songs evolved on that first year on tour. Had we recorded it a year later, it would have been a completely different album. You know, back in then, what was I? I was like 13, 14, 15, something like that. I wasn't a creator. I wasn't an author, but that always stuck with me. And I think, yeah, these things are just a snapshot in time. It's the best I can do at this moment. Um, So yeah, I I agree. It's very much, you know, as you say, it's not a disassociation. It's just a it's, it's that ability to be removed from the outcome. It's that ability to actually also, 
really get this idea, which I've really been working on in my own life over the last years. It's about, you know, journey over destination. It's about process over outcome, right? That's what it's about for me. It's like a lot of people, when they struggle in life, the question I say to them is, yeah, they're saying, well, you know, I don't know about this. Should I be doing this? You know, I don't know if this is really something I, I really, really want to do or not. I said, ask yourself this question. Would you still be doing this if nobody was watching? And I don't think it holds true in every situation, but I think it's a really nice guiding principle for us. Would I still be doing this if no one was watching? Because I think it's a very powerful question that helps us, you know, pass out the difference between doing things for external validation. What will people say? What will they say about me? What will they do? And the things that I, I'll still do this if no one else is watching, because I do it for its intrinsic value and pleasure. Now, I understand sometimes we do things at work or whatever. We have to do things in life that we wouldn't do if we had a choice. We're doing them because we have to do them, let's say, to pay our bills. But I do think it's a really interesting question for people to ask themselves. You know, am I only doing this so I can take a photo of it and post it on Instagram and then get all this validation? Okay, if you are, that's okay. Just at least be aware of that. At least be aware, you know, this doesn't really feed me. I say it's okay. I think it's deeply problematic if you do it too much and you don't realize that that's why you're doing it. But as I say, with, with everything in life, awareness is the most important step. A lot of people say, you know, wrong and yeah, okay, I've got the awareness now, but what can I do about it? I said, okay, that will come, right? There's plenty you can do about it. But until you are aware, you are never going to change your behavior. I've seen this as a doctor for over 20 years now. Until people get a, an awareness of what role that behavior was playing in their life, they never change it for the long term. This is why, you know, a two-week plan can work, a three, four-week plan can work for a short period of time. But then people will often revert back because they're not taking the time to understand why am I engaging in this behavior? Let's say alcohol. A lot of people are trying to cut down on how much alcohol they consume. And, you know, in January, they often manage to for two or three weeks, dry January or whatever. But for most people, it creeps back up very quickly to where their intake was before because they haven't recognized that that behavior is serving me. It's helping me deal with the stress in my life, let's say from work or from family or the fact that I feel lonely, right? So that then helps me numb that discomfort. Okay, fine. If you want to change that behavior, we have to go into the root cause and go, okay, you're using alcohol to help you de-stress. Okay, can we either reduce how much stress is in your life? And if not, can we find something that is not alcohol to help you manage that stress? Then you've got a chance at changing that behavior. Um, and that's certainly something that I found in my own life. A lot of my own kind of addictive tendencies have gone away, not because I've tried to reduce them, but because I've healed what I call the hole that was inside my heart. Like I've completed myself. Now those behaviors no longer serve me. Like I don't need them in any way like I used to because I kind of feel good and content with who I am. I, I, I try not to be too vague there. Was that, was that clear, Emma? That was very clear. And actually... Uh, it makes me think about a word you use a couple of times in the book, which is bulletproof. 
And it really, and I, obviously I read it in the book and I have an interpretation and listening to you now in our conversation, I can really feel it. It's a very, it does feel bulletproof. It feels very solid. It feels as though the work that you've done has given you uh, a, a very, yeah, that bulletproof Kevlar, I don't know what you want to say, outer casing, emotional, I don't know yeah. what it is, casing. So, someone said to me a few years ago, oh, I think this is when my, first series of Doctor in the House came out on BBC One. Someone said, oh, you're going to need to develop it. Just, you know, something happened. I got quit, you know, someone wrote a nasty tweet about me or whatever. I can't remember what it said. That's how important it was. But it made me feel really bad. Like mm -hmm. I would be really stressed. I didn't sleep very well. In fact, once my wife and I didn't sleep well for a week or so after one of the episodes came out because of the 0.001% of negativity, I let it bother me and affect me and affect how I felt. And someone said, oh, you've got to develop a thick skin. And it reminded me, when you just said bulletproof and Kevlar, it reminded me of that. I'm not convinced I think it's a thick skin anymore because a thick skin can imply that actually, oh, I just need to put on my defenses. You know, it doesn't bother me. We can, we can kid ourselves and say, oh, what people say, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not, it, you know, it, it, I don't feel that it's necessarily a thick skin that I've got. Like I genuinely have done the work to get to the point now where it, it, here's the thing I've learned, Emma, is that other people's words and actions can only trigger you and affect you when you have your own insecurities, right? And I did, I had deep insecurity. So therefore, if, if one person out of 10,000 makes a negative comment, you feel really bad because it's triggered your insecurity. And I've learned now, as I've gone into learning what those insecurities were, addressed where they've come from, done the work. A lot of these tools and principles I share in the book are the things that I've done to help me get to this point. I'm generally speaking, I wouldn't say always, you know, I'd be lying if I said always, but I'm generally speaking, I feel so secure now in who I am that if someone does leave a negative comment, which I've got to say is very rare, but if they do, I can look at it dispassionately and go, first of all, I can go, oh, is there any truth to what that person said? Like, let's say they're criticizing you. Because sometimes you can be, yeah, you know what? It's got a good point there. You know, next mm -hmm. time I post about this topic, I could, I could make sure that I frame it to take into consideration that. So sometimes I'll use it as a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. But if I think, oh, there's no truth to this, can I be like, ah, yeah, you know what? This is more about them. They're obviously having a really bad day and they're trying to take it out on me. That's cool. And I really feel love and compassion for them and go, yeah, that must not feel, that must not be a nice place to be where you feel so bad about your life that you think attacking someone online is going to make yourself feel better. And I genuinely can feel love and compassion for them now in a way that I couldn't in the past. So the negative comments don't bring me down anymore, but the positive comments don't artificially elevate my ego anymore either. Right? It used to be this big like roller coaster. You know, people say nice things, you get the external validation. Oh, you feel great. People say uh, bad things. You're like at the the bottom of that roller coaster now, feeling <laughs> awful. Whereas now I feel, I don't know, I feel a lot more level. Whereas 
I know my feelings are my feelings, right? I've chosen the way that I feel. It's not dependent on how other people are or are not with me. Mm. And I want to share that this is a trainable skill. I promise. I did not have this 10 years ago. I did not have it five years ago, but I've worked on it and I work on it every day. And you know what? It costs zero money. It just requires you to be aware and go, okay, I want to make some changes in my life. So I'm less dependent on the actions of others in order to feel good. And I would argue it's possibly the most important skill that anyone can learn in life because otherwise you're walking around just waiting for the world to be a certain way and you know just the reasons go oh yeah this always happens to me typical you know it never works out for me all this kind of stuff is very disempowering you can write a different narrative in every situation and i'd have to say that out of the in the 10 chapters in the book, chapter five is probably my favorite because it's literally, it's called. It's my favorite too. Is it? Yeah. I I love it. I I love them all, but that one has a special place in my heart. Why why do you love it? Because um, there's no, I can't quickly go to my answer. So I'm going to, I'm going to go around the houses because I have been on, I think I was uh, living as unhappy for a very long time and then experience depression and then have done the work to get to a place where I feel better. And the seeking out friction chapter really resonated with me because the only way I was able to build an emotional toolkit and get to a place where my mental health was more robust is by doing the difficult stuff, by doing the stuff that actually when I had a victim mindset, I was avoiding because it was keeping me safe, I suppose, or what I thought was safe, but it wasn't because it was preventing me from confronting and dealing with the things. And a little bit like you said a minute ago, once you deal with them, once once you confront them, once you deal with them, you are beyond them and you've learned. And that then becomes a part of your emotional toolkit, which makes you stronger. Yeah, I love that. That was such a wonderful answer. And it puts you or anyone back in control of their life. It's not a nice feeling to feel that your life is happening to you. It's something I've learned as a doctor that I have to be able to empower my patient in some way, even if they've got a really, you know, excuse me, even if they've got a really, um, you know, troubling diagnosis, I have to be able to give them something that they can hold on to, to give them some agency over their lives. Oh, even if I do this each day, this is going to make a difference. And I feel that this is one of the big problems in medicine today is that often without realizing we disempower our patients. It's like, okay, tell me what the problem is. What do I need to take? How many times a day? Will this help? Okay. That can have a role in some conditions for sure. But I always make sure that I empower them with a couple of things that they can do so they feel they've got some sense of control over their life and their health. And I feel broadening this out to all of us, it's not a nice place to be where we feel our happiness and our inner calm is dependent on other people, Mm. right? And, And a lot of people may think, what are you talking about? Look, if my partner's not nice to me or is rude to me, of course I'm going to feel bad. Okay, 
I understand that sentiment. That's what I used to think. But you can train yourself to get to a point that if your partner is behaving like that to you, you can absolutely train yourself to get to a point where that's not about you. You can still feel calm and content even in that situation. Now that may take a while to get to because it's often the people who are closest to us who trigger us the most. Yeah. But I promise you, I can actually feel pretty good in myself even if people that are close to me are struggling, it doesn't mean I don't care about their struggles or I'm not going to help them with their struggles. I absolutely am. But I also know how to go, well, yeah, that's, that's fine. But I don't have to let that now affect my inner calm and mean that I'm now going to be not as present and engaged with my children or my wife, or I'm not going to do as good a job in my job because I'm distracted by that. You can care and help people, but also have a boundary there where you go, yeah, but I can also choose to interpret this differently for myself. Um, and if, if anyone doesn't think that they can do that in their own life, like I, I say, think of a simple example where, you know, the, 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 the chat survivor is called seek out friction. And I basically say, use social friction as a way of learning about yourself. Right. So I don't know, let's say you get an email from your boss that is quite curt. It's not worded very well and you don't like it. Right. So we could often think things like, depending on our situation, I cannot believe my boss sent me something like that. Do they not know I worked right through last weekend or how much I've done for this company over the last years? How dare they? Whatever, whatever um, disempowering narrative we want to choose there. Right. And I know many people listening to this will have been in that position before. I probably, not probably, I have been in that position before. But you can always choose a different perspective on the same situation. You can think, for example, um, oh, I wonder why my boss sent that. You know, maybe his or her boss is putting pressure on them and they feel that they may be close to losing their job. So they're putting the pressure on me. Maybe my boss is, yeah, I did hear that they're having a few problems in his or her relationship. Maybe that's why they're taking it out on me. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. What I've learned, Emma, is the truth of the situation, it really doesn't matter for your happiness, right? For your happiness, it doesn't matter. And let's just think about truth for a moment, right? This, this is getting quite philosophical, I hope, if that's okay, let's right? Do it. Let's say... I don't know, it's a bit stereotypical these days, but let's say it's a married couple having an argument, right? Or a disagreement about something. What happened? What happened in that disagreement? If you ask them both afterwards, you're probably going to get two completely different stories. One part is going to say that I, this is exactly what happened. This is how it all went down. And you can walk, side, walk around to the other side of the table and ask the other partner, and they'll give you a completely different report of what happened. Same situation, two different perspectives, right? There was, a, there was a study done with football fans, right? An incident on the football pitch was shown to two different sets of fans and they were asked what happened. Both sets of fans reported different things. Same situation, but they have different perspectives, right? So what does that teach you? What is the truth? Well, I guess it all depends on your perspective, because if you take the perspective that's empowering for you and doesn't put you in that sort of victim mindset, you gain all the benefits. You feel calmer, more content. You feel happier. 
And this is absolutely linked with health, Emma, because, mm. and this is one of the big reasons why I wrote this book. Yes, I've been talking about lifestyle for many years. You know, 80% of what we see as doctors is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. I still stand by that. And for many years, I've been helping people understand that small changes to food, movement, sleep, and relaxation make big changes with your health. That was kind of what my first four books were around, really. But then I began to wonder, well, why is it some of my patients, despite making some brilliant lifestyle changes, are still struggling? Or why do some people change their lifestyle for a few weeks and then they revert back to where they were before? What's going on? Could there be something that's even more what I call upstream than lifestyle? And there absolutely is. And this is the whole premise of this new book is that your happiness, how happy you are in your life and with your life is hugely influential when it comes to your health. Hugely. There's a lot of science to support that now. And there's kind of two broad reasons for that. The one, the first one, I guess, is a little bit more obvious. This idea that if you feel happier and more peaceful and more content with your life, you're going to naturally make better lifestyle choices. You're less likely to comfort eat. You're less likely to dive into the chocolate digestives at 3 p.m. or 10 p.m. in front of the sofa. You're less likely to need half a bottle of wine to numb the stress or the loneliness of life if you feel pretty good, right? So you're naturally going to make better lifestyle choices, but it's not just that, right? They've done studies on nuns. They followed these nuns for their entire life. And once they'd accounted for lifestyle, so these nuns had the same diet, same exercise regimes, same sleep patterns, and same levels of stress, right? When lifestyle is the same, the nuns who were happier, they were healthier, and they lived longer. And then there's all kinds of studies, which I talk about in the book, really interesting people to show the powerful link between happiness and health. And this, people say, well, why is that? What is, what is going on there? And I don't think we fully understand every part of why it's the case, but one thing people don't recognize still, and I say this across society, but also within my profession, is that emotional stress is real, right? You could eat the best diet in the world. You could be going to the gym four times a week and sleeping eight hours a night. But if you allow the emails of other people to really bother you, if you can't let go, if you hold on to resentment, these things are toxic for your health. We know that holding on to anger, holding on to resentment, and inability to forgive, these things are associated, right, with cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, strokes, right? So Dr. Gabor Mate has written about this in the past. He, he's gone into a lot of research on this. But this kind of emotional stress that many of us are feeling is real. It has significant consequences on our physical health and our mental health. And I think that's why you're detecting this kind of, well, I think one of the reasons you're detecting this level of calm in the book, as well as urgency, is this, this really matters. I know it matters. I've seen it in pretty much all of my patients, how this impacts their lifestyle choices and their overall health and well-being. I've experienced it myself, but when you get it and you do the work, and a lot of these changes are quite simple, you just need to commit to doing them. You know, I feel less tension in my body. I feel less emotional stress. I feel, I feel less reactive in life, you know? And, and you know, that, that what I said about reframing stories, Emma, 
Because I know some people push back against us and go, you know what? Some situations in life are just, I can't reframe. You know, that, that person should not have done that the way that they did that. And until they change that, you know, I'm just going to be annoyed and frustrated because they shouldn't have done it. Okay, let me invite you to consider a different perspective here. I understand that there are some horrible things happening to people in their lives around the world. I understand that in some scenarios, it is more challenging to reframe and write a happiness story than in others. I, I, I respect that. I understand that. But let me tell you about a conversation I had with Edith Eager, Dr. Edith Eager. On my podcast, I'm going to say maybe just over two years ago, one of the most powerful conversations I have ever had in my life. And I think about it on pretty much every day, if not most days of the week. When I spoke to Dr. Edith Eager, she was 93 years old. When she was 16, she was growing up in Eastern Europe. Uh, I think she was getting ready to go on a date with her boyfriend that night. And they got a knock on the door. And both of her parents, her and her sister, were put on a train to Auschwitz. She gets to Auschwitz. She didn't even know what Auschwitz was, the concentration camp. She had no idea at the time. She gets there. Within two hours of getting there, her parents are murdered. I mean, this is dark. This is tragic. This is horrible. And one of the first things she had to do when she was there was she had to dance for these senior prison guards, right? And she said to me, Rongan, listen, I never forgot the last thing that my mum told me. My mum said to me, Edie, never forget, nobody can take from you the contents that you put inside your mind, right? So when she was dancing, she said to me, Dr. Tashi, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. In my mind, I was dancing at Budapest Opera House. There was a full crowd in front of me. There was a full orchestra. It was a wonderful experience in my mind. And I was like, wow, that's pretty incredible. In that moment that you could reframe that, I found that very, very moving. There was many things she said to me. One of the things she said to me is that she no longer in Auschwitz saw herself as a prisoner. She looked at the prison guards so they're the prisoners. They're the ones who are not free in their minds. They're the ones who are not living their life. I'm free in my mind, right? In the hell of Auschwitz, she managed to reframe every situation to be free inside her head. And then the thing that I never, ever forget, Emma, is these words that she said to me. And she said, Rongen, I had lived in Auschwitz. I've lived through Auschwitz. And I can tell you this, the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your own mind. And it is so powerful, Emma, because essentially what she's saying is that we create our reality in our minds. And I invite all of your listeners to consider, yes, there are things where you might find it challenging in life, but just to start easy... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. For most of the things 
that we stress about in our life, that we worry about the way other people have treated us or the way someone might have written their tone in their email, and we let that bother us and affect our own life. I, I want people to consider, well, look, if Edith can reframe every situation in the hell of Auschwitz, well, I kind of think most of us can reframe most of the situations in our own life without too much difficulty. It is not that difficult. You just need to start. And in the book, there are lots of helpful exercises on how people can start to do this. And I've got to say, this is probably the biggest thing that has helped me feel calm and content. I, I really genuinely don't allow any more the actions of others to adversely affect me. And if, if they do, I've got that awareness now to know, ah, oh, there you go again, Rongan. You're falling into that trap. What's going on? Are you knackered? And therefore you're feeling a bit more emotionally sensitive and you need to prioritize a few early nights? Or what is it? Is there some, is there some work to do here? Is that triggered an insecurity that you thought you'd sorted? And so it's a learning opportunity. It means every day is a school day, right? So instead of it being, I will be different when they act differently, it's like, no, the way I feel has nothing to do with them. I'm in charge of my feelings. And just as if someone, you know, if they were told they had to do a marathon in six months, right? And they went around the block and they were really, really struggling, right? And they couldn't run. They would understand, of course, I can't do this straight away. I'm going to have to train and build up to this. This is the same thing. You may find it tricky at first. You may go, how do you do this? But I promise you, like literally from my heart, I promise you, if you commit to this several times a week about taking a moment of social friction in your life and trying to rewrite a different story, one that I call a happiness story that's empowering and helps you feel calm. But if you do that, you will find within weeks, you will feel like a different person. And in a few months time, you will be completely transformed. I, I'm sure if I've experienced it, I've seen it. And Emma, look, I know it's your show, but can I, can I ask you a question, right? Of course. Um, you've obviously had a conversation with me on your show, I think every year for five years now, some in person, some remotely. Do you see a difference? I mean, do you detect a change in me and the way I interact and the way I'm answering your questions. I mean, I'm just interested. Have you, have you noticed any difference? Do I, you know, I feel like a different person, but I'm just interested because I really respect your opinion. You know, do you see anything different? I do. I mean, it was as soon as we started talking before we hit record, you, there's, there's a much more, the, there's a slower rhythm, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. There's, you're not, trying to rush what you're saying to me because you're not trying to convince me and you're a seasoned interviewer I've been interviewing for many years sometimes it can feel very frenetic on the other end if someone's trying to sort of saturate yeah. you with what they know but it's very calm it's very methodical and you're taking your time I've noticed a lot of the times before you answer a question you're almost closing your eyes for a second and it's as though you're sort of the computer's getting everything, all the results up so that you can share what you want to share, but you're very mindful of sharing it in a way that's going to be accessible. That's what's coming across. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, it's always interesting to hear. That's certainly how I feel. There is a, 
know, I think, I think the old Rongen or these older versions of Rongen, you know, you know, I was very passionate. I still am passionate, but I think if I look back that that passion was, Hey, look, I, I really think this is going to help you. Let me share it with you. You know, if you do this, it's going to help you do this. And you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That was who I was at that time. Right. So I, I couldn't pretend to be someone who I wasn't. That was who I, who I was, but I feel the newer version of Rongen doesn't feel that freneticness that I used to feel. Like, as you say, I'm not trying to convince you. Like I'm trying to share information that not only do I believe to be impactful, I've experienced the impact mm -hmm. myself. And I'm also very detached these days from the outcome of things. It's kind of like, you know what, if people are ready for the message and it, and it resonates, great. If they're not, that's okay as well. I don't have to, you know, push it and push it and try and convert people. I, I'm not interested. I've, I like people are ready for the messages in life when they're ready mm -hmm. and they're not ready anytime sooner. Uh, people often ask me at events, Dr. Jassy, I've, I've made some of the changes that I learned about in your podcast or your books, and it's really improved my life. Um, you know, I want my boyfriend to experience the same things or my husband or my mum, but they won't listen to me. You know, what can I do? And I always say, you can't. Like, I used to be that person as well. I wanted to share it with my family. Oh, you know, you know, um, it's just not seen in the same way. It doesn't land in the same way with those people. They have to be ready for that message. The best thing you can do is live your truth, make the changes, feel better in yourself, show up as a different, calmer, more content person. And that will have an impact. Right? People will feel that. They go, hmm, I, I want to feel like you seem to feel. Like, how do how do I get to that? How do I get to not being triggered by everything? So I feel like there's a real different energy in the way I put ideas across these days, but it wasn't, it wasn't like intentional. Like I feel, you know, we've not spoken about, I guess, the definition of what, or certainly the, my definition of happiness, what I call core happiness, but there's three components to it. But one of them is alignment. And alignment is when the person who you really are inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. It's, it's like when your inner values and your external actions start to match up more and more. And I think for much of my life, there was a huge gap and a huge void between those two things. And I've been closing them more and more year on year. So now I feel I'm probably not fully there yet, but I'm a lot closer than what I used to be. And so I can now show up as me. I can be open and honest and share things about myself and go, yeah, that's, that's me. I mean, if you're not hiding anything, there's nothing to fear, right? I mean, what could, what people are going to say if you, if you share that, you know, it's interesting. My wife, who's, who's absolutely incredible. She, she edits my podcast each week. Um, she, she looks at each book before it goes to print, but she will not look at it until the very final stages. I'm, I'm often saying, Hey, please have a look at this. You know, does this bit make sense? You know, have I got the idea right? Can, can, is that easy to understand? She won't look. She'll say, listen, I'm not going to look. I'm going to look at it right at the end because she then comes in right at the end with a very clear objective mm. view. 
And her comments are just amazing. The sort of little things that she picks up, I'm like, oh yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I, I, I can tweak that and change that. But one thing she said this year, before this one went to print, she said, hey, babe, listen, are you sure you want all of these stories in there? Because I've shared some stuff about my own life. And I said, yeah, why not? She goes, you know, I don't know. It's pretty personal. Do you, do you, you know, do you want people knowing that? I don't remember saying to her, I said, yeah, I'm totally cool with it. Like it doesn't bother me now. Yeah, there was probably a slight fear initially, but I've got comfortable with that. I go, yeah, I'm okay with that. I think it's very powerful. I think it connects us all like as humanity when we know that everyone's got their own struggles and their own insecurities. I said, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm really happy with it. So she is my wife, knowing that I you know, have a big audience and I'm in the public domain, is trying to make sure, hey, babe, look, do I need to protect you here? Do I not, you know? But for me, a few years ago, I couldn't have done this, Emma. But now I feel totally at peace with it. It's like, yeah, this is who I am. This is who I was. This is my journey. And I would, I would hope, and I'm pretty sure this is the case, that it makes this book even more powerful than my last four because, because of that personal connection um, I mean, you, you've, you've taken a look at them all. I don't know what you think, but I, I certainly think this is the most, of course I'm biased and I've just spent the last year writing it, but I, but I genuinely think this is the best book I've written. And I think without question, it's the most important book I've written that has the potential to have the most impact on the most people. I, I agree. And I think the book before, which was a look at weight and addressing a topic that is incredibly, uh, what's the word, inflammatory, let's just say. I thought that was done really well because it was the first time I'd seen somebody really approach it with compassion and really look at it in a way. And you know my backstory with weight yeah. and all those issues. So for me, it was the thing of, I wish I had, if I'd read this at 17, would life have taken a different turn? Would I have been able to get to where I wanted to be quicker but this one you're absolutely right it's um it is really personal and I think I think as well it's so universal it's almost as, a, as though with the other books you were peeling back the layers and all the layers are relevant about health and stress and weight and what have you but once you really get to the core of it this this underpins everything pretty much yeah this is the root of the root of the roots for me this is you know how we interact with the world understanding that in every situation in life, we have a choice in how we react. That's huge. Mm. Because a lot of the stuff we talk about in health and well-being are downstream consequences, even lifestyle, right? How much of our food choices and our food behaviors are a result of us dealing with the stress or discomfort in our life? So many, so many you know, there, there are consequences. We don't feel good in ourselves. So we have the sugar and makes us feel good. Yeah. You've got to address you not feeling good in who you are. We've got to address the fact that actually at our core, many of us don't like the person who we see in the mirror. You know, there's a whole chapter on, you know, chapter three is treat yourself with self-respect. It's all about that self-compassion. How can you have that compassion for yourself? I didn't for most of my life. I didn't have that compassion for myself. You know, my inner voice was pretty toxic and pretty negative, And I thought I needed that to drive me to success. Yeah, it drives you to success, but it comes at a great cost. Right? I open up that chapter, I remember, with a story from when I was at university in Edinburgh. And, 
you know, after a couple of nights out on Friday nights and Saturday nights, on a Sunday afternoon, me and a couple of my flatmates would often go to Diane's Pool Hall at Edinburgh, this kind of old school kind of... Um, I wouldn't say dingy. I don't want to be disrespectful to the place. I spent a lot of time grunge. there. But You're grungy, grunge. exactly. <laughs> grunge. And there was there was a cool jukebox. I'd go and put in my pound coins and we'd we'd choose our tunes and we we'd, you know, we'd unwind on a Sunday afternoon and play some pool. Now, it just so happens that part of my personality, or what I thought was part of my personality, and this is really interesting, was to be competitive. My whole life, people will say to you, or people would say to me, Rongan is so competitive. Like he is super competitive. And yes, I was, but I'm not anymore. But I certainly was. And if I was ever losing at pool, I mean, it's just you're just playing with your mates, right? <laughs> but if I was ever losing, I'd often go into the, to the men's toilets and I'd look at myself in the mirror and I'd just sort of give myself a little slap on the face and call myself a loser. I'd come out and more often than not, it would motivate me to play better and I'd usually end up winning. Not always, but usually. And I know I thought nothing of it. I thought that's just who I am. Like I'm competitive. But over the last years, I've realized, no, no, no. It wasn't that I enjoyed winning. Losing was too painful, Right. I just couldn't stand to lose because I thought it said something about who I was. This goes back to my childhood and my upbringing about where if I, you know, got 19 out of 20, I was asked by my parents, why didn't you get 20 out of 20? If I came second in the class, why weren't you top? Who came top? Why, what are you going to do next time to come top? And just to be really clear, I love my parents. They did it from a place of love. They were mm. immigrants to the UK. They had all kinds of discrimination and struggles in their mind the way that we stop our kids from going through that is by having academic success so they thought if i get top grades get straight a's go to medical school i'm not gonna have any problems in life because i won't face the struggles that they face so they did it from a place of love but we talk about perspective well let's walk around to the other side of that table and little rongan takes on the the idea that oh i'm not enough unless i'm top i'm not enough unless I've got full marks. So that then plays out when you're 23 playing a game of pool with one of your best mates and you cannot stand losing because you think it says something about who you are. And here's the thing, even if I did win, I realized recently I wasn't happy that I'd won. I was just relieved that I didn't lose. And irrespective of the outcome, it leads to what I call these junk happiness habits as opposed mm -hmm. to core happiness, right? Junk happiness habits, we've all got them, our go-to habits that we go to when we feel discomfort or pain or we don't feel good in who we are. It could be, it could be gambling. It could be um, sugar. It could be alcohol. It could be online pornography. It could be whatever it might be for you. It often comes down to that root cause of not feeling enough in who you are. So over the past few years, since my dad died just over nine years ago now, I've been on this inner journey of figuring out where all these patterns have come from. As I said before, I feel I've healed that deep void that I had inside myself. Is it completely healed? I don't know, but is it more healed than it was? Yes, I'm sure there's always opportunities to learn in day-to-day -day life. Things come up and you go, oh, that little thing still bothers me about. Okay, cool. I, I can now work on it. Had that situation in life not come up, I would not have known that about myself. So it's approaching life with the mindset of a learner. Like I'm here to learn. I'm no longer attached to right or wrong as I used to be. 
doesn't matter to me. I just want to learn each day, learn about myself, learn about the world and learn how I can improve myself. And that's why I feel this deep sense of calmness and contentment. And that's why I feel able to write a book like this with, I think, a lot of simple practical tools for people um, that will make a difference. And, and just to, to complete the loop on that competitive point, a lot of us think that our personality is who we are. But Emma, what I've come to realize is that a lot of our personalities are not who we are. They're defensive adaptations that we took on to help us when we thought we needed to. I became competitive. Why? Because it helped me as a child. Oh, if I'm competitive and I value myself only when I'm the best, I'm going to do better in my exams. Therefore, I'm going to come home with better grades and get the love of my parents. But when I'm older, I realize, oh, you are enough in who you are. You don't need good grades or success to be enough. Well, I'm no longer competitive, right? That was a defensive adaptation to who I was, what I thought I needed. I don't need it anymore. So now, actually, the Rongan in his early 40s, I'm not competitive. And I, I think it's really powerful to people to think about their own lives and their own personalities and go, how much of my current personality is who I am? And how much of it is who I needed to be? Mm. And I tell you, if you go there, there is gold waiting for you on the other side because it's going in there and figuring it out and I'm convinced that my new book is going to help people do that, you will find that you can make peace with that part of yourself. And on the other side of that, there is this lightness and this freedom. It is, isn't it? It's, it you say there's gold on the other side, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not, not going to be uncomfortable. Even when you were saying that, I was thinking, right, what have I, what do I, what, what immediately comes to mind for me? And for me, it's having a hard exterior. I felt like as a little girl, I got bullied. And so I just, I have a, and my brother has said that it's a force 10 bit shield that he'll, we once were meeting up in town and he said, I didn't even want to come over and approach you because you just looked completely unapproachable, but I don't want to be unapproachable at all. I want to connect with people all the time. And yet I still have this mechanism of if I'm hard, if I'm hard, if my exterior is hard, if I'm unfriendly, if I'm cool, if I'm aloof, then I can't be taunted yeah and and those old habits die hard mm. you know you can make some changes and be better but then something will come up in life where it comes up again and i want to encourage people to see that not as failure but as an opportunity for learning mm. right it doesn't mean that the work you or anyone else has done up to this point is worthless no great oh but it's incomplete. There's still a bit more to do. And if you, if you approach life with this mindset, it's much more freeing. Mm. You know, I, I, 10 years ago, if you said one day you won't be competitive, I was like, you're kidding me. I'll be competitive to the day I die. You know, this kind of false bravado, but it's nonsense. I, I'm not competitive. I'm really not. And in fact, I don't think human beings are. I actually think something I think a lot about as a parent, you know, my kids are 11 and nine at the moment. And I see what happens when the school system starts to you know, really influence how they think. And I feel a lot of the time 
as great as my kids' schools are, I still feel systemically there's a problem with the way we're bringing up our kids. We're teaching them to be competitive and that in order to feel good, a lot of the time we unwittingly put this idea onto them that, oh yeah, you can only be good if someone else is less than you. So you start to create the separation between you and other people. And it's really, really toxic, really, really toxic. And, you know, we need to learn to be enough in who we are, that we all are fundamentally enough in who we are. And we've all got different skills. Some of those skills will be academic for some people. For some people, it'll be in arts or music, but you don't have to feel not enough just because you can't get a good grade in maths or English, right? And that happens to be valued by your school. Well, guess what? It, it's not necessarily what everyone values in life. And I do think, you know, I start off the book with, with I think, quite a evocative first two paragraphs asking people to think back to their childhood and think back to a moment where they felt calm, present in the moment. They weren't worrying about the future. They weren't fretting about the past. They were just there. For me, you know, I've got all kinds of memories. One memory is just, I don't know, I was probably five or something. Nice sunny day. I'm in the back garden with my brother. We're barefoot playing cricket. And I think I'm, I'm imagining that I'm batting for England and I hit you know, the ball into the fir trees. And I think I've scored a 50 and I'm saluting nobody with my, you know, it's, it, we all had it. We all had it once, but somewhere along the line, we, we lose it. We, we get conditioned. That's what chapter one is about, how society basically sends us off track. And I spent a lot of time in that chapter helping people understand the difference between success and happiness. And in fact, if you're up for it, Emma, I've got an exercise in that chat, which I'd love to, to try on you let's if you're up for it, going into it. it, right? Because I was literally it, about to ask you about success and happiness and you completely, you almost know what I'm thinking. I felt, I felt <laughs> it from you. I felt it. Um, no, it's, it's kind of, we, we often confuse the two things, right? We, we think that a better job, more money, a nicer phone, a nicer hotel room when we go on holiday is going to make us happier. And the truth is for most of us, if not all of us, it's simply not the case. I'm not saying that money is irrelevant, right? Just to be really clear, <laughs> we do need money to a certain point to meet our basic needs, you know, food, shelter. We need to feel safe in our home environment. And most of the research points to the fact that, you know, until you have enough to meet your basic needs, yeah, more money will lead to more happiness. That is true, according to the research. But I don't think money in and of itself brings happiness. I think money starts to remove a lot of the common sources of unhappiness, right? It doesn't. So many rich people who've had incredible success feel incredibly unhappy, deeply discontented. I, I spoke to Pippa Grange once on my show. Pippa's amazing. Mm. She was a psychologist with an England football team in maybe between 2016 and 2018, and she has this concept called winning shallow and winning deep. And she would talk about all these Premier League footballers, these England players, she didn't, of course, name any names, but basically people who from a young age thought that when I get that level of success as a footballer, my life will be sorted. And she talks about them, you know, they're literally at Wembley, they picked up the FA Cup trophy. And as they're walking down the stairs, they feel empty. Well, I spoke to Johnny Wilkinson last week. He came up to the studio. We're, we're going to launch it, I think, next week. And Johnny Wilkinson, you know, arguably the most famous rugby player in the world early on in the 2000s, 
you know, fairy tale ending. From a young age, he wanted to play for England and win the World Cup. At 24, he got all his dreams. In the final minute of the game, he kicks the winning try, the winning goal, right? Delivers his country the World Cup. And immediately afterwards, a deep sense of emptiness, anxiety, depression, like awfulness inside. He woke up the next morning feeling just empty. What's next? Like, what do I do now? And there's a very provocative section in chapter one of my book called Your Dreams Won't Make You Happy. And I'm trying to make this case for people that for most of us, our dreams will not make us happy, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily go for them, but let's not confuse the two things. So one question I want people to ask themselves is, where do your dreams come from? Do they come from a place of lack or a place of love? If they're coming from a place of lack, I contend that if and when you do achieve them, they're probably not going to make you happy. But if they're coming from a place of love and fullness, yeah, I think they'll help you as part of your happy, contented life, but you don't need it in order to be happy. So one of the exercises in that first chapter is it's got two parts. There's happiness habits and there's write your own happy ending. And I'm going to try it on you now. You don't need to overthink it. <laughs> but the first part is write down or, or say to me three things that you think that if you did this week would make you happier. Going outside for a walk for at least an hour in nature. Love it. Exercising five times. Again, I love it. And connecting with friends and family. Yeah, I mean, I love it. And, and it doesn't surprise me that you have, you know, you really get this because I know the journey you've been on and you talk to incredible people each week on your show and it helps it helps us learn and adapt and change our life as we do. So I love those things. Now, the second part of the exercise is called write your own happy ending. So imagine now you are Emma Guns on your deathbed and you are looking back at your life. What are three things that you will want to have done in your life? Oh gosh. Um, there's one thing to do this exercise where you're reading the book in your living room. Quite another one here. Okay. Please don't stress, by the way. There's no right or wrong here. You know, it's, no. it's, and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, of course. It was just, no, no, I think it's good. I think it's good. This is the friction. This is discomfort. This is you are, the other side on this is, of this is where you get the good stuff. Uh, I would like to feel that I have, uh, that I was good to my family, was a good daughter, was a good sister. That's important to me. I would like to think that I gave everything my best and continue to improve. So my best was always getting better, if, if you like. Yeah. And that's one thing I'd travel. I'd like to see a bit more of the world. Yeah. So and love I, the answers. And, yeah. <laughs> no, go on, go on. Well, I was going to say in tandem, I'd really love to travel the world with the podcast, actually. That's something that's on my wish list for this year because I just, I feel, um, I don't, don't know if you've heard of an author called um, Frances Edmonds. She's written a brilliant book called uh, Repotting Your Life. And that just, it, it was as though on, in a way in lockdown when I spoke to her, I realized that my mindset, a lot of the time, I will make the world smaller to make myself feel safer. Mm. And reading that book, made me realize how life limiting that is. It might keep you safe in inverted commas, but it limits your life and it prevents you from experiencing 
really wonderful things and learning. And like you say, every day is a school day. And so I had that conversation with her in lockdown. And ever since it's like, I just want to get out of my pot. And I feel as though my pot at the moment is the UK. And I really want to travel. Oh man, I love that. I'm going to listen to that podcast episode later today when I go I'm for a walk. That sounds, <laughs> please do. Yeah, I'm, it just sounds absolutely incredible that. Um, what was really interesting as you did that exercise is that, as you say, a bit of friction came up, a bit of discomfort. I, of course, I don't know what it was. It's like, oh, people are going to listen to this. Like we're having a conversation. I'm trying to come up with something good to say here, but I don't know what's going to come out. All this kind of usual stuff you're nodding so I'm guessing that was part of it and I know what that feels like um it also reminds me of what you said before about how I often shut my eyes before mm. I answer a question and that's something I never used to do because I thought I had to know the answer and be the expert straight away and not have any pauses but there's a real acceptance now and a trust in me like a trust in myself that what will come up will come up at the right time and Yes, of course, I've done lots of public speaking and I've spoken, you know, I've been doing my podcast, uh, you know, for four and a bit years and, you know, done book tours and all this kind of stuff. Sure, I've got experience, but I really feel there's a deep trust now that actually I don't have to know the answer. And if I don't know, I can say I don't know, or I can just say what comes up in that moment. And that is all it has to be. It doesn't have to be a perfect curated answer. And so when I hear your answers, I think there is an alignment there. So for people who want to do that exercise, the really important thing is you look at the three weekly happiness habits and you look at the, the three things that you want on your deathbed and you look at them, you bring them together and go, if I do these three weekly happiness habits, will that give me the happy ending that I want? Mm. It's very simple, but it's deceptively simple. And for some people who've done it, they're like, oh man, these things are completely different. Actually, that's fine. That's giving you an awareness. Now you can start to go, oh, maybe I'll make, maybe I'll change one of my happiness habits because actually doing this is not going to get me to my happy ending. I think yours were pretty aligned. You know, you said walk in nature, that's time to yourself. You know, having spoken to you before, I imagine that the exercise piece is to do with how it makes you feel and your mm -hmm. mental well being. Um, and you want to have spent time with your family and friends. Well, that's your weekly happiness habits. What did you say at the end of your life? You will want to have nourished those important relationships. Okay, great. So one of your happiness habits is spending time with friends and family each week. Well, if you do that week after week, Emma, you are going to meet that goal at the end of your life. You will have nourished those important relationships. And you can do that for each one of them. And it's not like a competition or to you know, make people feel guilty. No, it's a very simple exercise that will literally take people two to three minutes maximum to do that gives you a real deep sense of awareness on your life. And, you know, for me, I've done this a few times and I keep refining it, but I guess as we speak now, like I know that if each week I have time to pursue one of my own passions, whether that's going for a walk or a run or playing my guitar or writing a song, whatever, if I have time to pursue my own passions, that will make me happy. If I've spent quality time with my wife and my kids and my mom, that will make me happy. Um, and if I've done something to help other people, so I would say if I record an episode of my podcast each week, those things will make me happy. And when I look on my deathbed, what will I want? I will want to have made a difference in the lives of other people. Okay, great. If I do a podcast each week, that's going to get me there. 
I would want to have nurtured my most important relationships. So I actually have a thing that I write down. Okay, this week, I want to make sure that for five meal times, I am sitting down with my wife and kids completely undistracted. So I've actually refined it to that point where I know if I hit that metric week after week, I am nourishing that relationship. And I, I know at the end of my life, I'll want to have had time to engage in my passions. So each week, if I find time to play my guitar or go for a run, I know I'm doing that. And it's, it, it, it really brings that intention in. And it means no matter what's going on at work, maybe I have a bad week at work or it's, you know, it's stressful or whatever. Okay, fine. But I know if I'm hitting these three happiness habits, I'm getting to my happy ending. And the truth is, Emma, the truth is we're not quite as different as we might seem. Like, I, I don't mean me and you, I mean all of us. You know, have you, I don't know if you've read the book by Bronnie Care, Five Regrets of the Dying, Palliative Care Nurse. I'm literally you know. just reading it now. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, energy, you know, serendipity, call it whatever you will. Um, you know, she spent years caring for people at the end of their life and she has these five regrets. And I can't remember them all at the top of my head, but they are things like people consistently say the same things at the end of their life. I wish I'd work less. Mm. I wish I spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. I wish I'd lived my life and not the life that other people expected of me. And we can hear that, Emma. We can talk about this stuff because not you, not me, not anyone else wants to get to their final days on planet Earth and looking back going, oh man, I wish I'd made different choices. We can learn from those experiences that go, no. You know, relationships, if you look at all the scientific research that exists on happiness, it's pretty clear that the number one factor on how happy you're going to be throughout your life is the quality of your relationships. And how many of us, myself included, get so distracted by work, even if our work is full of passion and purpose, right? We can be so committed to it that we can end up neglecting the most important things in our life. And that's why my core happiness concept has three legs, alignment, contentment, and control. And I say each of these legs is separate, but they're all essential. Yes, you can be aligned, right? You can find your purpose and be crushing it with your purpose, but you could also be neglecting, you know, contentment or control. And so the reason of creating this model was to make something that was genuinely useful and practical for people. So happiness doesn't become this kind of far away, vague concepts, but it actually becomes something practical that, oh, I can work on each of these three legs of the stool. And the more I work on them, the more stable my core happiness is going to be. So yeah, I really appreciate you doing that exercise. And I, I hope that all of your listeners, Emma, also spend a couple of minutes today doing it on themselves. Well, I hope so too, because actually at the time that we're recording this is March, 2022, and I'm doing 12 habits. And March's habit is, it's really simple. It's a happiness habit. So it's just every single day, do something that makes you happy. And the initial feedback I had from people on the first, when I announced it was the biggest shock was that it took me a minute to figure out what that might be. And I'm still not sure that what I'm doing is going to make me happy. So the exercise that we've done is, is crucial. Yeah, there you go. And isn't that interesting? It takes a people a couple of minutes to even figure out what it is. I think that's how disconnected many of us are to 
the truly important things in life. I get it, right? Life is busy. It may be that we have young kids and we're trying to juggle their needs, our own needs, our work needs. I get it. I get it. But a lot of this stuff is not as difficult as you think. We just need to create a bit of space in our life, even two or three minutes to ask ourselves. If all we do is ask ourselves as your challenge, what's one thing that I could do that will make me happy? And let's say it's something that doesn't take long. Let's say it can be done in under five or 10 minutes. And a lot of them can. And you focus on that. You are going to be happier than you were had you not done that. You know, what is happiness at its core? It's a feeling. If you feel happy, you are happy. It doesn't matter what I say or what you say or what someone else says. If you feel happy, you are happy, right? Now, technically, it's a result of all these chemicals that we make in our brain, dopamine or adrenaline, serotonin. But pretty much all of us have got the capability of producing these chemicals in our brain. We've got the factory, the happiness Mm -hmm. factory inside all of us. We just need to do the right things that allow that factory to do its job. And I love that happiness factory. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a simple way of looking at it. it. We have the capability. Happiness is an inside job. Mm. We've heard this from Buddhist monks in the past. We've heard this from spiritual teachers. And, you know, we're now hearing it from a doctor. And, you know, I always feel that, I always thought, and I, you know, when I started this, why, why is a doctor writing a book on happiness? You know, you don't usually expect a doctor to write a book on happiness. And I, I feel it's a very interesting and unique perspective that comes through the lens of me as a doctor and why happiness, I feel, is so important for myself and my patients. But yes, I agree with all those past teachers that it is an inside job. Nobody around you can make you happy. We have to make ourselves happy. And It really isn't as hard as people think. It is a skill. In the book, I've broken down the skill. Mm -hmm. Everything is free of charge. You don't have to buy anything at any point in the book in order to practice these things. That's what I'm really proud of. You know, I always try and make my books and my messaging on my podcast as accessible to as many people as possible. You know, a lot of things we've spoken about, they don't cost you any money. Yeah, they cost you a bit of your time. But what better way to spend your time than on things that are going to make you happy. And here's the magic. When you feel happy in your life, the people around you are also going to feel happier, right? Because what you do has a ripple effect on those people around you. So coming back to the hundred million, right at the start of the conversation, (laughs) like, I think that this is the way we change the world. We change the world through changing ourselves, right? We learn these principles, we feel less triggered, we feel calm, we start showing up more as the people who we really are, not the people who we think we need to be. And actually the people around you are gonna respond to that and they're also gonna do the same. So there's a lot of division in the world at the moment. Mm. Um, A lot of it I feel is unnecessary. And I certainly hope that this book contributes to a kinder, more compassionate, but also a happier world. And I think it can. And I think, like I said, I read the book and just thought, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. And as you say, you're the case study and you acknowledge, I think one of the most important things, which I think is we can assume that people who are happy are just, that's how they're born. That's just, those are their factory settings. If we're going to talk about factories, 
but actually you have access to it too. It might just be that your journey to it requires a little bit more work, might be a little bit uncomfortable, but once you get there and start doing the work, you'll begin to reap the rewards pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. Couldn't agree more. Well, um, I know I have to let you go. So listeners, the link to the book and obviously Rongan's amazing podcast will be in the show notes. But honestly, I could have talked to you for another four hours easily about all sorts of things to do with happiness and many, many other questions that I had. But um, it's always such a joy to chat to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Emma. Keep up the great work. You've got a great show there. You're helping so many people. And um, yeah, it's a real honor to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.